Hello, welcome to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today is March 28th, 2023, and I'm excited and elated to have on another Liberty Warrior, a real happy warrior overall, who's a freedom fighter each and every day in the great state of Louisiana, but has also done a lot of work across the states. And it's none other than Daniel Esparma. Daniel, welcome to Let People Prosper show. Hey, Vance, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, awesome, awesome. And I should note, too, that I'm a chief, I'm chief economist at the Pelican Institute Public Policy. So Daniel's also my my boss, uh, but we get, <laughs> we get along really well. And uh, I'm really delighted to have him on the, the show today. And so let me go first for the audience and give your bio so they'll know a little bit about you. Um, and then we'll get right into it. So Daniel is a nationally recognized free market leader. Uh, he spent his career building and growing effective policy organizations across the country. Over the course of his career, he has mentored hundreds of nonprofit leaders, raised tens of millions of dollars for opportunity policy initiatives, and helped achieve meaningful policy wins across the nation. Since being appointed Pelican Institute CEO in 2017, he has built a team and strategy to address Louisiana's most substantial policy challenges and to create a Louisiana Louisiana, where everyone has the opportunity to flourish. Amen. Under Daniel's leadership, mm -hmm. the Institute has generated policy victories in the areas of education reform, criminal justice reform, state spending, innovation policy, occupational licensing, and much more. For this work in 2020, Daniel was recognized with the Buckley Award, given annually by America's Future, to recognize leaders making strides to advance freedom and prosperity. Prior to his leadership at Pelican, Daniel served as vice president for strategic partnerships for State Policy Network and in a variety of leadership and development roles at the National Office of Americans for Prosperity. He holds a BA with honors in political economy and communication from Tulane University. Daniel and his wife and, and kids, uh, well, they all live in New Orleans and they're four children, one dog, two birds, two guinea pigs, and many tropical fish. So <laughs> with all that, Daniel, and with your zoo there, what motivates you to do what you do each and every day? You know, like a lot of us, um, I came into this space from the intellectual side, right? Uh, my my sort of uh, life changing moment for this was uh, was reading Milton Friedman in college. But what motivates me every day, like, again, like a lot of us, is is waking up and seeing those kids every day. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about what is the future that we're going to leave for my kids, for your kids, for uh, for the next generation of Louisianans and and Americans, and so. Uh, you know, corny as that may sound, I think all of your viewers who have kids will know exactly what that means. And, you know, that that's just that's why we got to get up and do it. And, and, you know, I love the name of your show, Let People Prosper. And that's that's what it's all about. Uh, that's that's awesome, Daniel. And do you, was there a moment in your career that, that was that tipping point? I mean, was it the Milton Friedman's book, which was also mine, Capitalism and Freedom? I've got to sit right. right back over here. Uh, but but was there any other sort of, you know, life situations that kind of made, had, had it to where, you know what, the light bulb came on and you wanted to go in a different direction? You know, I, it, not so much a different direction, but I, there's a moment I'll never forget. And uh, I was a young dad. Uh, we were living in the D.C. area, and uh, and this was uh, right after I remember it vividly. The I was one of those nerds uh, sitting up late watching the the final vote on Obamacare, and I just have this vivid memory of walking into my daughter's room. She's sleeping in her crib and looking, and saying, "Oh my gosh, what have we done? Um, what you know? This was a a moment. It was one of those things that surely couldn't happen, and yet." here we were, it happened. And, you know, I'd already been working in the space some and, you know, was was committed to these ideas. But that was the moment where it said, okay, this is it. It's time 
to really double down and commit, um, we, we've got to turn this around for her and, and for everybody else. Yeah, no, that's a man. That's a that's a big one right there. I remember the an, another one that kind of turned me in that direction was kind of the Iraq War and kind of the the war situation. Where I remember in uh, one of my economics courses, they talked about well, war creates more economic growth. You know, that's how we got out of World War II. I mean, out of the Great Depression was from World War II. And like, that doesn't quite make sense, you know, with the broken window fallacy and things of that nature. And it's interesting in our histories where we get those turning points. From your more philosophy where you said you started with, what is kind of like your political philosophy of, of how people come together and institutions and things of that nature? Where, where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? Yeah, I'm, you know, I always sort of describe myself as a conservatarian. Um, so I, I tend to be, a, you know, closer to a classical liberal philosophy. Um, seems like the older I get, the more libertarian uh, I become, which uh, I'm not sure I would have predicted that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, on the same, you know, maybe where I, I veer off of maybe a, a more traditional libertarian is, I, you know, I really... I believe in civil society. I believe in uh, in sort of a core moral fiber of the country. You know, the, the founders are very clear that this was a, a republic set up for a virtuous people. Um, and and so while, I, you know, I certainly don't believe government uh, should be in the business of defining morals or virtue, it, it is incumbent upon us and and sort of our little platoons and churches and community centers. And, and so I think, you know, I, I do have a belief in some institutions, some societal and cultural institutions. And, and if we can provide liberty and government and, and a good, solid community and civil society, I think that's that's ultimately the answer to, to let people prosper. Well, that's right. Yeah. You know, Daniel, with your time at Pelican and and moving in, in Louisiana and, and, and trying to make so many of these reforms, you know, um, you and I, we've looked at a lot of these data that are going on. And um, Louisiana's unemployment rate is 3.6% right now, um, as, as far as February 2023, which sounds good. You know, that's about what the national average is. Many economists would consider that to be full employment. But, but as we know, and has been digging into this, is that you've got to look underneath the hood. To also note that people are moving out. The population continues to de to decline on net as people are out migrating out of Louisiana. And um, the more work that I've done with you and the team and been to Louisiana, I mean, look, Louisiana has so much going for it. It's got a great culture. It's got the ports. It's got oil and gas. I mean, there's just so much that's happening there. Um, and, and, and Mardi Gras and, and tourism and all those great things. Whenever you're looking at Louisiana and building doing this now for a number of years, what do you see kind of as the good and, and what's some of the bad that really needs to be worked on? Yeah, you've nailed it, Vance. Let's let's start with um, with, with unemployment. You know, this has been I, I really believe that we ought to stop reporting an unemployment rate. It's it is a. A statistic at this point that's almost useless, and the the information, the the, the data point that I think is far more relevant is uh, is workforce participation rate, right? And so this was a, an argument um, that the governor and I would sort of publicly have over over the last few years is you know there'd be a press release touting record low unemployment and. I'd say, yeah, but look, we've got all these people not in the workforce. And, uh, you know, my, my sort of analogy on this is this is like uh, the pastor taking the back two pews out of the church and saying we have record Sunday attendance. You know, this is this isn't how 
this works. And our, our really our goal is, you know, you, you put it as let people prosper. And in Pelican parlance, we talk about human flourishing. It's the same goal, right? Is that everyone should have the opportunity uh, to, to pursue their vision, to pursue their dream. And so let's look at how we're doing in Louisiana, right? Not not well. Um, you know, you mentioned out migration. We are the third highest uh, out migration rate in the country. Um, when I talk to our leaders, when I talk to, to to voters around the state, you know, when we're in league with New York and California and Illinois, this is not a, a list on which we want to be. So then, you know, we go to our our assets. You, you nailed it. We have five of the top 15 ports in the country, the most active natural gas sector, some of the most oil refineries of any state in the country. Uh, we have inexpensive land, access to water, the mouth of the mighty Mississippi. There's just no reason we shouldn't be an economic powerhouse, perhaps the most prosperous, the most flourishing state uh, in the country. And, you know, the, the other thing we look at historically, even as recently as 1960, New Orleans, Houston, and Atlanta were all around the same size. Uh, we look today, of course, and that story is very different. Um, and, you know, it's easy to blame natural disasters and hurricanes, and but, but that's not the story here. The story is bad economic policy, and it really goes back. We're in, we're, we're just about to the 100th anniversary of the beginning of longism in Louisiana. This is the, the political philosophy espoused by Huey Long. We've had three state constitutions that have supported basically uh, the, the ideas of longism. And, and let's remember that Huey Long's goal when he ran for governor was, was really one thing. It was a deeply populist agenda, and it was to punish standard oil. He believed that it was taking from the poor and making a few people rich and, and not helping everyone else. And so the entirety of longism really is based around punishing standard oil. And that's basically how our government is still st structured today. And and I guess, you know, it, it's a success. It worked. It, it drove all the oil and gas companies out of the state. Uh, it has made us one of the highest poverty rate states in the country. And yet uh, a very powerful central government, a very powerful set of status quo industries that that really don't want things to change. Uh, so it's it, despite amazing assets, despite amazing people, despite amazing culture, people come here by the millions to play. Um, they should stay. And uh, you know, I love raising my family here. My kids uh, love it. But gosh, if we don't act pretty quickly to reverse a hundred years of longism and and create a place really where everyone can prosper, we're we're going to reach a point where it's hard to come back. Yeah. And, and Daniel, one of the things that has been kind of shocking to me, learning more about Louisiana and working on some of the policies is the effect that Huey P. Long had on the state. Um, one of the things that, you know, I look at a lot are state budgets, um, responsible state budgets across the country. And one thing, again, that was shocking to me is that the budget that is submitted by the governor in Louisiana has a lot of has a lot of clout. <laughs> There's a lot of power to it compared to many other states where it's more of a ceremonial budget. Even you know when I was chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget at the White House, we put a lot of effort into it and everything else. But in some sense, we knew it was more of a policy document. This is what the this is what the president is saying about the future. But we knew when Congress got it, they're basically going to throw it in the trash. But that's not necessarily how it is in Louisiana, though, right? That's right, Vance. The uh, the governor sets the tone. The governor's proposal for the budget is the budget 
off of which the legislature works. And uh, really, it's only in the last four, four to eight years, uh, three to seven years, that uh, the legislature has maintained much independence at all from the governor. You know, beyond the budget, um, this is the first term in modern political history in Louisiana where the elected Speaker of the House and President of the Senate were not the choice of the governor. Um, this wasn't by rule. This wasn't, you know, in statute anywhere. It's just by tradition. The governor got to pick uh, who, who legislative leadership would be. And so, you know, it's it's many of the the sort of vestiges of power of the Louisiana governor are by tradition. Um, and then add to that, the, the Louisiana governor appoints about 5000 people to boards and commissions every year. Uh, my understanding is, you know, if you look at Texas, the the Texas governor has something like 500, and so you know this is this is an enormous amount of patronage, an enormous amount of power, and, and I don't mean that to cast aspersions. I think most governors do the best they can to appoint the right people to those, but but it's just by nature of that structure, that's gonna that's gonna hold a lot of power, and these boards and commissions uh, rule Louisiana. Um, it, you know, so so we've got to there's some deeper constitutional challenges and and just a, a ton of power by tradition and by structure that that lives uh, uh, lives in the governor's mansion. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, some other things to think about about the you know the state of Louisiana and how it ranks with other states. When you look at the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of North America, their latest report showed that, you know, actually Louisiana ranked 20th. So it was in the top half of those states. And that's looking at government spending, tax burdens, and regulatory burdens, mainly labor market regulation, um, where, you know, Louisiana has pretty low property tax burdens whenever you look at, you know, things like the tax foundations reports and things of that nature. Personal income taxes has a high of 4.25%, but it's a progressive, you know, 2.8, 3.5, and 4.25. So there is that progressive nature there. Um, it has the 15th highest corporate income tax rate of, of seven point, you know, low, low over 7%. Um, and so those are making it to where it's less conducive to economic growth and potential for businesses to want to move there, but also an incentive for, you know, people move with their feet, right? One of the things in economics is we have economic incentives and people decide to move elsewhere, whether it's in Texas where there's no income tax or Tennessee where there's no income tax or Florida where there's no income tax. And so, you know, um, I've talked to our laugher here recently who always talks about how taxes have consequences, right? What have you seen in, in the kind of the direction of Louisiana and where where Louisiana should go when it comes to, to taxes. Well, that's right. You know, we look, we're, we're in maybe, I haven't studied it in depth, but I suspect we're, if not the highest, among the highest mobility in the history of the United States right now. People are moving in in large numbers and, and they're moving all around us. They're moving to Texas. They're moving to Florida, Tennessee. They're even moving to places like Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama, you know, we, we've always had always had sort of a Texas chip on our shoulder here in Louisiana, but uh, now we're starting to develop one for Mississippi too. Uh, with all all due respect to our our friends in Mississippi, and and so we're losing population while while the states around us are gaining it, and and the tax code, you know, this is it's such a great example of of how we get things wrong. Um, and, and, you know, because you look at those numbers and if you if you look at sort of the overall tax burden, we're relatively low uh, with the highest homestead exemption in the country, which means low property tax rates for a long time. Very few residential uh, property owners paid property tax. It's a seventy five thousand dollar homestead exemption. 
Um, so, so overall, the tax burden is relatively low. The problem is we've made it so complex uh, and, and made the tax code so challenging that the rates are artificially high relative to the tax burden. We made some progress. You noted the, our top individual marginal rate of four and a quarter. It was 6% two years ago. Um, and, and that swap happened basically by eliminating uh, a major deduction that was in the, in the tax code that was just bad tax policy to begin with. Um, but but just, just as an example, you go from six to four and a quarter at the top marginal rate just by eliminating a deduction. You look at the corporate rate, we have 432 pages of tax preferences in the corporate tax code alone. You know, I always uh, I always like comparison. So I, I checked the uh, the New Testament and the King James Version of the Bible is 184 pages. So, uh, you know, we have a, a, a tax code substantially longer than uh, than all of the New Testament. You know, it's it's just these are things that ought to be simpler. And if we could simplify it, uh, we could eliminate it. Frankly, we, we actually uh, give more in tax preferences in the corporate tax code than is collected uh, in actual taxes. So, uh, but the problem is if you've got a deduction, you've got a tax preference, you're hard pressed to give it up, even, even in favor of, of flattening or, or eliminating or phasing out an income tax. And so, and, and those are the industries and special interests that have highly paid lobbyists and really effective lawyers and accountants. And, uh, and the little guy often gets, you know, gets left behind in that. So, you know, if we, if we look at sort of our freedom index, right. Or, or the, we ought to be even much better than we are. And the, the conditions are there to do so. We've just, we've got to do the hard things and it means, you know, this is the hard part, right. It means politicians who are willing to step up and say, no, to a deeply entrenched and very powerful status quo. And the only way to do that, at least that I know of, uh, is to rally the voters, to, to get citizens to provide, be, be, have constituents be a counterweight uh, to those special interests. And uh, if we can align those incentives, that's, that's the way to get it done. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, Daniel. I think um, it reminds me of, uh, speaking of philosophy and political philosophy, uh, James Buchanan, economist, uh, public choice economics, talked a lot about, you know, rent seekers, that there are these rent seekers out there. And, and ultimately, you know, politicians have to get reelected. <laughs> and so there are certain handouts that are going to happen to where we get this convoluted, complicated tax codes, whether it be personal income taxes, corporate income taxes, or, or others, um, to where you're, you're, you're essentially trying to carve out and, and create situations where people will vote for you at the end of the day. Um, and, and some of those could be well-intended. I'm not saying that they're not well-intended, right. but you know, the best sort of economics or tax situation for the economy and for people ultimately, right? Because the, the economy is just people, is the broadest base with the lowest rate. And make sure that that creates a situation that is, um, supports economic growth and human flourishing and all the things that you know, we like to talk about. The other side of this coin though, um, Daniel, what you and I talk a lot about is spending. It, you know, Louisiana has has actually done a pretty okay job in some extent of their overall budget, but there's a lot of federal funds. Um, I, I believe, you know, they they have the third most of any state of 44% of the budget comes from the federal government, which is really just us, whether it comes from our right pocket or left, left pocket, it's coming out of our pockets and those taxes that are paid. But there's a lot of dependency on the federal level, which continues to grow the budget in other ways. Whenever you're thinking about the budget picture and, and spending, what are some of the things that, you know, you would like to see within the, within the budget there in Louisiana? 
Yeah, you, you again, you've nailed it. The, you know, some years we've been the top recipient or by percentage of, of federal funds. Some years, you know, we're always in the top five um, through a mix of a variety of things, natural disasters being one of them. But but it has a huge impact, right? You look, uh, and unfortunately, I think uh, it's not even our our right pocket or left pocket. It's our great grandkids' right pocket or left pocket that <laughs> those federal dollars are coming from. Yeah, uh, and yet, what do we? What do we do, right? When when a politician brings home the bacon, we uh, we reward them. We have a press conference and say bravo. You know, the, the, again, the, the incentives here are, are terribly misaligned, even for the right people. So, you know, as we look at the budget, uh, y- you've nailed it. You know, including federal funds and and everything else, we've just in the last seven years moved from twenty eight billion to nearly fifty billion uh, for a for a state of you know, roughly four and a half, 4.6 million people. Uh, that That is an absurd amount of money, um, especially if you've driven here. Uh, the roads are not very good. Um, and I, I think, you know, a lot of people would say we're, you know, certainly haven't uh, doubled our service output uh, in, in those seven years, haven't improved the roads by two times in the last seven years. So, we've we've got to get this under control. So, you know, as, as you've led on Vance, um, looking at a, a responsible budget uh, for Louisiana, interestingly, the, the legislature passed a, a pretty good expenditure limit uh, in 2020. And, and an expenditure limit actually exists in the Constitution already, just not very effective. Although we may hit it this year, amazingly enough, as ineffective as it is. So the legislature passed this in 2020. Uh, of course, that was in the depths of, of COVID lockdowns. And so, uh, you know, winning that the voters have to approve any any constitutional change. And so, you know, there we were trying to win a win a constitutional amendment vote without being able to get out on the stump and and work and rally rally people. So it it was narrowly defeated with a, a very uh, difficult set of ballot language as well. So it's very confusing for people to understand it. Um, but that's that's part of the solution. We've got to we've got to constrain the growth of government, make sure it's not growing faster than population. Again, we talked about it, net out migration uh, or inflation. And, you know, up until the last couple of years, inflation has been relatively flat, relatively low. And yet again, we've almost doubled uh, the state budget. So if we can get those things uh, under control, here's the other thing about the Louisiana budget um, that we have these things called dedicated funds and other states may have these, too. Uh, but but. When legislators walk in, if you think about that $50 billion budget, uh, legislators control only about 10% of that. Um, so when you walk in uh, to the Appropriations Committee meeting or you know those lawmakers walk in to vote on a budget, the federal dollars, of course, are already accepted with all their strings attached and and you know dedicated to wherever they're they're going. Uh, the legislature has taken action through our constitution and through statute to to lock up other funds. And you know, I always say this: it's just hard to imagine if you were running your household budget or or running a small business uh, based on a a budget where ninety percent of it was decided by your crazy uncle fifty years ago. You know, this is think about the things we we pay for now, the things that are priorities now that didn't exist then, uh, whether it's the Internet or a cell phone bill or a Netflix subscription or, uh, you know, wh- whatever it may be um, that didn't exist. And so if we had to live off of the priorities from 50 years ago, we we wouldn't make good decisions. And that's that's where we are now. And so when we have an up year, we just spend, spend, spend. Uh, and then when when we have it down here and listen, we're an oil and gas and a, a hospitality economy. We have big ups and downs. Um, and so when we have a down year, there's nowhere to cut. 
uh, no easy place to cut, I should say. There's plenty of places to cut, uh, but no no easy ones because the things that are most popular are often the things that are not locked up in the Constitution. And so we have this ratchet up effect over time where uh, it's really created a mess that we've just got to get out of. Yeah, that's that's right, and I, and I think we we've, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the the landscape, the institutional framework, because institutions matter, right? And and getting the taxes and the spending and the budget right are going to be so important because you need those fiscal rules, those those guardrails to make sure that we're heading into a constitutional um, direction, not things that are getting government and things that they shouldn't be in. Um, which is one of the great things that I think we're we're doing and are doing at the Pelican Institute, and and we just released, you know, this. This, this comeback, um, uh, Louisiana's comeback agenda. And what I y'all put in the show notes page, advancedgen.com, or you can find advancedgen.substack.com. Um, but there are many more good ideas that, that are in there. You know, when you're thinking about giving every kid a school that fits, enhancing public safety, creating jobs and opportunity for all, modernizing the tax and policy and budget responsibility, um, and embracing technology and spur innovation, reduce regulatory barriers. I mean, all these things are about human flourishing and really getting Louisiana back on track, the comeback agenda. Uh, what are some of the things that really get you fired up about this session that starts, uh, you know, and and the, the, the early stages of it and what will happen during that session? What gets, what gets you fired up, Daniel? Oh, man. You know, and this is so interesting because our, our session starts much later than most other states. We get to look around and see what see what everybody else did and see what we can uh, see what we can try to replicate. But, you know, the thing that that really drives my passion and always has uh, is education policy. And, you know, we look uh, just uh, this week, Texas has passed or excuse me, uh, uh, Florida has passed a universal education savings account. Georgia seems to be on the on the verge of doing so as well. This fight is going on in Texas. Uh, the chairman of our House Education Committee has introduced the Sunshine Scholarship. Uh, accounts, which are universal education scholarship or education savings accounts. Listen, I mentioned at the top of the show, we've got four kids. Um, you know, I know you see this with your kids too, when they, they just all learn differently. And that means the same school, the same teacher, the same environment that, that works really well for one kid doesn't necessarily work for another kid. And, uh, you know, all of my kids are, are so far, knock on wood, have been have been pretty high achievers. They've been uh, they've they've done really well in school, but that doesn't mean the same thing is going to work for them. And they they have great educational opportunities. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's really critical that we allow every family and every parent and every kid to find the right fit for them. And that may be a traditional public school. It may be a magnet school. It may be a public charter school. It may be a private school. It may be a homeschool. It may be a co-op. It may be tutors. We you know, just, there's, there's all of these opportunities. It may be, uh, you, you know, it may be a Montessori environment. You just, you just, and it may be something we haven't even thought of yet. You know, even just the last three years have brought incredible innovation into the education marketplace. Uh, these kinds of programs that allow dollars to follow the child to the educational opportunity of their choice, that's going to spur even more opportunity. Um, you know, we're, we're spending about $13,000 on average between state and local uh, to educate uh, uh, kids in our traditional public schools here in Louisiana. Some of them are exceptionally good, uh, but but the end of the day, 
our results are not. Um, on aggregate, we're at the bottom of the list uh, on reading, on math. We have 10,000 kids a year on the college track who require remediation when they get into our colleges and universities. Um, we're not preparing kids well enough. And, and a lot of that just has to do with making sure our kids are in the right place for them. And uh, and so I'm, I'm incredibly excited. I think uh, we're seeing this moment of education freedom sweeping the country. Uh, Louisiana has got to get uh, not only on that train, but out in front of it. We've been a leader in education reform a long time. Uh, it's time time to do better, and it's time to help our kids uh, help our kids prosper and our, our kids succeed. Yeah, yeah, amen. It's quite fascinating too, Daniel, to see. You know, we've got this school choice revolution that's going on across the states. You've got the flat tax revolution that's happening across the states. I think we're going to start seeing the responsible state budget revolution across the states. You know, these are and, and, and within this system of federalism, this laboratory of competition that we have, it's extraordinary to see, to your point, what works and what doesn't work. And I, I agree with you. I think that we're going to see things come up that we have no idea within the education space because we have a limited amount of knowledge. And Hayek, another one of my favorite economists, talked about the knowledge problem, right? Where we individuals up within government or just a few individuals don't have the knowledge of the full marketplace of innovation and entrepreneurship that can come out through, throughout what's going on. And we need to be instilling those ideas um, within our kids. And too often, we're not seeing that just in one type of, if it's a government-run school or, or other types of schooling, to your point, you really need to fit whatever the needs are going to be for those kids, for those families, and really empower parents to ensure that they have the opportunity to do what's going to be best for their kids. One other thing that I wanted to touch on, Daniel, as we're wrapping up here, is I, I know you're also passionate about the, the technology space, space. and what we're seeing with kind of you know the antitrust issues of the Federal Trade Commission and Lena Khan and 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 what's happening there in D.C., uh, but we're also seeing some states you know talking about this with social media bans for minors and other things that are going on. Um, what are some of your thoughts in in this space on the, on the technology sector? You know, it, it's it's really concerning as you look at this environment. So let's, let's, let's just zoom out for a minute, right? The, the place in our economy that's had the most growth, that's created the most jobs that has uh, spurred the most entrepreneurship has been this, this technology space and, and the innovation space more broadly. And, um, you know, I, I started arguing this about uh, 15 years ago, that if we didn't as, as free marketeers, as free enterprise believers really get out ahead of this, um, that the government would want to get its grubby little hands all over that sector of the economy too. It's the last, it has traditionally been uh, the last bastion of free enterprise um, for all of its, all of its faults uh, and all of its benefits. And, um, it, and we have seen in real time, I love this graph that shows the dominant uh, social media or digital uh, platform over time. And it, you know, it just, it's this animated thing that, that it, it's, we see creative destruction. We see, uh, we, we see all of the components of free enterprise playing out right before us. And, and so it's no surprise uh, that uh, the Biden administration, FTC, that, uh, that big government uh, 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 progressives are eager to regulate, to get involved, to, to try to stop innovation. Um, that, that's their playbook. Right, and uh, and so it's it's no surprise that that we see big government now trying to get uh, deeply ingrained in in this space. It's also no surprise 
that we see some of the leaders of those industries and companies trying to cozy up to big government. This is, you know, this is uh, Atlas Shrugged all over again, right? Um, there's, there's no surprise. This is the way. Uh, this is the way this typically works. The surprise and the concerning thing is to see our fellow conservatives and conservatarians uh, try to get in that same space as well. And um, you know, I, I argue with my friends uh, across uh, across the country all the time on this. That uh, you know, these the things that are being proposed are the things that the other side, the other guys do. Um, you know, our job is is to make sure that free enterprise can flourish. That uh, and and again, I said it at the top of the show, but that we have civil society and churches and community and uh, family uh, that provides the counterweight to to the negatives that we see in any uh, any opportunity, any innovation. There's there's nothing that's un- unadulterated good. There's 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 good and bad to everything. So. Um, you know, this is this is something that's really important. We've got to get out ahead of this. We've got to stop our friends who are uh, use, trying to use the power of big government to to put their ideas into the marketplace. Um, let's let the market flourish. Let's let people prosper and let's let people have the opportunity to succeed or fail on their own merits. Um, and that's how we're gonna. That's how we're gonna really drive the economy to the next, the next century, the next generation. Um, if if we continue to act the way we've been acting, uh, we're we're gonna con- find another industry to ruin and find another uh, place uh, to to turn the country backward. Yeah, well put, Daniel. Well put. I mean, markets work, governments don't, and government has some roles, but these aren't the types of roles they need to be in. We need to be empowering parents to do its best for their kids, whether it be their schooling or their social media or whatever else it is. I don't want bureaucrats to be telling me what I need to be doing with my family. You know, so I think you're right Amen. on there. Um, Daniel, the, the, just the last couple minutes we have here, what else would you like, you know, to tell the audience or anything else about some of the stuff we talked about today or, or anything else? Yeah, Vance, yeah, thanks thanks again for having me on. And uh, it's it's a great pleasure to get uh, to work with you every day. Um, you know, you and and your colleagues and our team are, are just fighting the good fight. Uh, I'll maybe end where we started, which is, um, or where you started, be, be a happy warrior. You know, this is, life is is short and uh, and there's a lot of serious things happening and and make no mistake, not everything is fun and, and funny, but, but we have the right ideas. We have optimism. We have hope and, uh, and real hope, right? Uh, and real change. And, um, and so, you know, I just, I would encourage uh, your your viewers and listeners to to go about this work with a good spirit. Debate is a good thing. Engage the other side and in, in uh, you know in good spirits and and in in goodwill and uh, be willing to to engage and debate and persuade. Uh, we do it with a smile on our face, um, and we do it with with all the hope and optimism in the world. That's how eventually we're going to to really move the ball down the field. And um, you know it's it's important that. Uh, that we win for sure, but it's important that we live life. Uh, one of our culture principles here at the Pelican Institute is the idea of joie de vivre, right? The joy of life, the joy of living. And uh, so I encourage uh, everyone listening and watching to, you know, just to have a great day, find somebody to to smile at and, and, uh, and, and be optimistic with um, and, and keep fighting these fights because we're on the right side and, and we are the people who want to let people prosper and let's invite uh, as many folks as we can to join us uh, in this effort. And, and that's, that's how we create the movement that's going to win the day. Well, amen, Daniel. And I know that you're doing that each and every day as you are a happy warrior. Um, there's going to be a lot of good things happening in Louisiana and um, across the nation. 
because of the great work that you've done and are continuing to do and that we're going to continue to work together on, um, there's a lot to do. And um, so I really like the way you, you, you finished that up there. Um, for the audience, if you like this, please give us a five-star rating. Tell others about it so they can listen as, as well. Um, there's a lot to do, and we're going to keep doing this at the Happy Warrior way, as Daniel put it there. Until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>